Chapter 20, Part 1 of the Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book 2, by William Blackstone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roy Haynes. Of Alienation by Deed, Part 1. In treating of deeds, I shall consider first their general nature, and, next, their several sorts or kinds of deeds with their respective incidents. And in explaining the former, I shall examine, first, what a deed is, secondly, its requisites, and thirdly, how it may be avoided. 1. First, then, a deed is a writing sealed and delivered by the parties. It is sometimes called a charter, carta from its materials, but most usually when applied to the transactions of private subjects it is called a deed, in Latin, factum, because it is the most solemn and authentic act a man can possibly perform with relation to the disposal of his property, and therefore a man shall always be estopped by his own deed or not permitted to aver or prove anything in contradiction to what he has once so solemnly and deliberately avowed. If a deed be made by more parties than one, there ought to be regularly as many copies of it as there are parties, and each should be cut or indented, formerly in acute angles interdentium, but at present in a waving line, on the top or side, to tally or correspond with the other, which deed so made is called an indenture. Formerly, when deeds were more concise than at present, it was usual to write both parts on the same piece of parchment, with some word or letters of the alphabet written between them, through which the parchment was cut, either in a straight or indented line, in such a manner as to leave half the word on one part and half on the other. Deeds thus made were denominated syngrapha by the canonists, and with us chirographa or handwritings, the word syrographum or syrographum being usually that which was divided in making the indenture, and this custom is still preserved in the making out the indentures of a fine, whereof hereafter. But at length indenting has only come into use without cutting through the letters at all, and it seems at present to serve a little other purpose than to give name to the species of the deed. When the several parts of an indenture are interchangeably executed by the several parties, that part or copy which is executed by the grantor is usually called the original, and the rest are counterparts, though of late it is most frequent for all parties to execute every part, which renders them all originals. A deed made by one party only is not indented, but polled or shaved quite even, and is therefore called a deed pole or single deed. 2. We are in the next place to consider the requisites of a deed, the first of which, that there be persons able to contract and contracted with, for the purposes intended by the deed, and also a thing, a subject matter to be contracted for, all of which must be expressed by sufficient names, 
So as in every grant, there must be a grantor, a grantee, and a thing granted. In every lease, a lessor, a lessee, and a thing demised. Secondly, the deed must be founded on good and sufficient consideration, not upon an usurious contract or upon fraud or collusion, either to deceive purchasers, bona fide, or just and lawful creditors, any of which bad considerations will vacate the deed. A deed also, or other grant, made without any consideration is, as it were, of no effect, for it is construed to inure or be effectual only to the use of the grantor himself. The consideration may be either a good or a valuable one. A good consideration is such as that of blood, or of natural love and affection, when a man grants an estate to a near relation, being founded in motives of generosity, prudence, and natural duty. A valuable consideration, such as money, marriage, or the like, which the law esteems an equivalent given for the grant, and is therefore founded in motives of justice. Deeds made upon good consideration only are considered as merely voluntary, and are frequently set aside in favor of creditors and bona fide purchasers. Thirdly, a deed must be written, or, I presume, printed, for it may be in any character or in any language, but it must be upon paper or parchment. For if it be written on stone, board, linen, leather, or the like, it is no deed. Wood or stone may be more durable, and linen less liable to erasures, but writing on paper or parchment unites in itself, more perfectly than any other way, both those desirable qualities. For there is nothing else so durable, and at the same time so little liable to alteration, nothing so secure from alteration that is at the same time so durable. It must also have the regular stamps imposed on it by the several statutes for the increase of the public revenue, else it cannot be given in evidence. Formerly, many conveyances were made by parole, or word of mouth only, without writing. But this giving a handle to a variety of frauds, the statute 29 Charles II C3 enacts that no lease or estate in lands, tenements, or hereditaments except leases not exceeding three years from the making, and whereon the reserved rent is at least two-thirds of the real value, shall be looked upon as of greater force than a lease or estate at will, unless put in writing and signed by the party granting or his agent lawfully authorized in writing. Fourthly, the matter written must be legally and orderly set forth, that is, there must be words sufficient to specify the agreement and bind the parties, which sufficiency must be left to the courts of law to determine. For it is not absolutely necessary in law to have all the formal parts that are usually drawn out in deeds, so as there be sufficient words to declare clearly and legally the party's meaning. But as these formal and orderly parts are calculated to convey that meaning in the clearest, distinctest, and most effectual manner, and have been well considered and settled by the wisdom of successive ages, 
it is prudent not to depart from them without good reason or urgent necessity, and therefore I will here mention them in their usual order. 1. The premises may be used to set forth the number and names of the parties with their additions and titles. They also contain the recital, if any, of such deeds, agreements, or matters of fact as are necessary to explain the reasons upon which the present transaction is founded, and herein also is set down the consideration upon which the deed is made, and then follows the certainty of the grantor, grantee, and the thing granted. 2.3. Next come the habendum and tenendum. The office of the habendum is properly to determine what estate or interest is granted by the deed, though this may be performed, and sometimes is performed, in the premises, in which case the habendum may lessen, enlarge, explain, or qualify, but not totally contradict or be repugnant to the estate granted in the premises, as if a grant be to A and the heirs of his body, in the premises, habendum to him and his heirs forever, or vice versa, here A has an estate tale and a fee simple expectant thereon. But had it been in the premises to him and his heirs, habendum to him for life, the habendum would have been utterly void, for an estate of inheritance is vested in him before the habendum comes, and shall not afterwards be taken away or divested by it. The tenendum, and to hold, is now of very little use, and is only kept in by custom. It was sometimes formally used to signify the tenure by which the estate was granted to be holden, viz. tenendum per servitum militare, in Burgagio, in Libero Socagio, etc. But all these being now reduced to free and common sockage, the tenure is never specified. Before the statute of Chia M. Torres, 18 Edward I, it was also sometimes used to denote the lord of whom the land should be holden. But that statute directing all future purchasers to hold, not of his immediate grantor, but of the chief lord of the fee, this use of the tenendum hath been also antiquated, though for a long time after we find it mentioned in ancient charters that the tenements shall be holden de capitalibus dominus fiodi, but as this expressed nothing more than the statute had already provided for, it gradually grew out of use. 4. Next follow the terms or stipulations, if any, upon which the grant is made, the first of which is the redendum, or reservation, whereby the grantor doth create or reserve some new thing to himself out of what he had before granted, as rendering thereby the yearly sum of ten shillings, or a peppercorn, or two days plowing, or the like. This render Reditus, return, or rent, under the pure feudal system consisted in chivalry, principally of military service, in villainage, of the most slavish offices, and in sockage, it usually consists of money, though it may consist of services still, or of any other certain profit. To make a redendum good, 
if it be of anything newly created by the deed, the reservation must be to the grantors, or some, or one of them, and not to any stranger to the deed. But if it be of ancient services or the like, annexed to the land, then the reservation may be to the lord of the fee. 5. Another of the terms upon which a grant may be made is a condition, which is a clause of contingency, on the happening of which the estate granted may be defeated, as, provided always that if the mortgagor shall pay the mortgagee five hundred pounds, upon such a day the whole estate granted shall determine, and the like. 6. Next may follow the clause of warranty, whereby the grantor doth, for himself and his heirs, warrant and secure to the grantee the estate so granted. By the feudal constitution, if a vassal's title to enjoy the feud was disputed, he might vouch or call the lord or donor to warrant or insure his gift, which if he failed to do, and the vassal was evicted, the lord was bound to give him another feud of equal value in recompense. And so, by our ancient law, if before the statute of Chia Emptores, a man enfeefed another in fee, by the feudal verb dede, to hold of himself and his heirs by certain services, the law annexed a warranty to this grant, which bound the fee for and his heirs, to whom the services, which were the consideration and equivalent for the gift, were originally stipulated to be rendered. Or, if a man and his ancestors had immemorially holden land of another and his ancestors by the service of homage, which was called homage ancestral, this also bound the Lord to warranty, the homage being an evidence of such a feudal grant. And, upon a similar principle, in case, after a partition or exchange of lands of inheritance, either party or his heirs be evicted of his share, the other and his heirs are bound to warranty, because they enjoy the equivalent. And so, even at this day, upon a gift in tail or lease for life, rendering rent, the donor or lessor and his heirs, to whom the rent is payable, are bound to warrant the title. But in a fiefment in fee by the verb dedi, since the statute of Chia M. Torres, the fee for only is bound by the implied warranty and not his heirs, because it is a mere personal contract on the part of the fee for, the tenant, and of course the ancient services, resulted back to the superior lord of the fee. And in other forms of alienation, gradually introduced since that statute, no warranty whatsoever is implied, they bearing no sort of analogy to the original feudal donation. And therefore, in such cases it became necessary to add an express clause of warranty to bind the grantor and his heirs, which is a kind of covenant real and can only be created by the verb warantizo or warrant. These express warranties were introduced even prior to the statute of Chia M. Torres in order to evade the strictness of the feudal doctrine of non-alienation without the consent of the heir. For though he, at the death of his ancestor, might have entered on any tenements that were aliened without his concurrence, yet, 
If a clause of warranty was added to the ancestor's grant, this covenant descending upon the heir ensured the grantee, not so much by confirming his title as obliging such heir to yield him a recompense in lands of equal value. The law, in favor of alienations, supposing that no ancestor would wantonly disinherit his next of blood, and therefore presuming that he had received a valuable consideration, either in land or in money which had purchased land, and that this equivalent descended to the heir together with the ancestor's warranty. So that when either an ancestor, being the rightful tenant of the freehold, conveyed the land to a stranger and his heirs, or released the right in fee simple to one who was already in possession, and superadded a warranty to his deed, it was held that such warranty not only bound the warrantor himself to protect and assure the title of warranty, but it also bound his heir. And this, whether that warranty was lineal, collateral, or to the title of the land. Lineal warranty was where the heir derived, or might possibly have derived, his title to the land warranted, either from or through the ancestor who made the warranty, as where a father, or an elder son in the life of the father, released to the decisor of either themselves or the grandfather, with warranty, this was lineal to the younger son. Collateral warranty was where the heir's title to the land neither was, nor could have been, derived from the warranting ancestor, as where a younger brother released to his father's decisor, with warranty, this was collateral to the elder brother. But where the very conveyance to which the warranty was annexed immediately followed a decision, or operated itself as such, as where a father, tenant for years, with remainder to his son in fee, aliened in fee simple with warranty, this, being in its original manifestly founded on the tort or wrong of the warrantor himself, was called a warranty commencing by decision, and, being too palpably injurious to be supported, was not binding upon any heir of such torturous warrantor. In both lineal and collateral warranty, the obligation of the heir, in case the warranty was evicted to yield him other lands in their stead, was only on condition that he had other sufficient lands by descent from the warranting ancestor. But though, without assets, he was not bound to inure the title of another, yet, in case of lineal warranty, whether assets descended or not, the heir was perpetually barred from claiming the land himself. For, if he could succeed in such claim, he would then gain assets by descent, if he had them not before, and must fulfill the warranty of his ancestor. And the same rule was with less justice adopted also in respect to collateral warranties, which likewise, though no assets descended, barred the heir of the warrantor from claiming the land by any collateral title, upon the presumption of law that he might hereafter have assets by descent either from or through the same ancestor. The inconvenience of this latter branch of the rule was felt very early, when tenants by the courtesy took upon them to alien their lands with warranty, which collateral warranty of the father descending upon his son, 
who was the heir of both his parents, barred him from claiming his maternal inheritance, to remedy which the statute of Gloucester, 6 Edward I, C3, declared that such warranty should be no bar to the son unless assets descended from the father. It was afterwards attempted in 50 Edward III to make the same provision universal by enacting that no collateral warranty should be a bar unless where assets descended from the same ancestor, but then it proceeded not to effect. However, by the statute 11, Henry VII, C20, notwithstanding any alienation with warranty by tenant and dower, the heir of the husband is not barred, though he be also heir to the wife. And by statute 4 and 5 and C16, all warranties by any tenant for life shall be void against those in remainder or reversion, and all collateral warranties by any ancestor who has no estate of inheritance in possession shall be void against his heir. By the wording of which last statute, it should seem that the legislature meant to allow that the collateral warranty of tenant and tail, descending though without assets, upon a remainder man or reversioner, should still bar the remainder or reversion. For though the judges, in expounding the statute de donis, held that, by analogy to the statute of Gloucester, a lineal warranty by the tenant in tail without assets should not bar the issue in tail, yet they held such warranty with assets to be a sufficient bar, which was therefore formally mentioned as one of the ways whereby an estate tale might be destroyed, it being indeed nothing more in effect than exchanging the lands entailed for others of equal value. They also held that collateral warranty was not within the statute de donis, as that act was principally intended to prevent the tenant entail from disinheriting his own issue and therefore collateral warranty, though without assets, was allowed to be, as at common law, a sufficient bar of the estate tale and all remainders and reversions expectant thereon. And so it still continues to be, notwithstanding the statute of Queen Anne, if made by tenant in tail in possession, who therefore may now, without the forms of a fine or recovery, in some cases make a good conveyance in fee simple by superadding a warranty to his grant, which, if accompanied with assets, bars his own issue, and without them bars such of his heirs as may be in remainder or reversion. 7. After warranty usually follow covenants or conventions, which are clauses of agreement contained in a deed whereby either party may stipulate for the truth of certain facts, or may bind himself to perform or give something to the other. Thus the grantor may covenant that he hath a right to convey, or for the grantee's quiet enjoyment, or the like, and the grantee may covenant to pay his rent, to repair the premises, etc. If the covenantor covenants for himself and his heirs, it is then a covenant real, and descends upon the heirs, who are bound to perform it, provided they have assets by descent, but not otherwise. If he covenants also for his executors and administrators, his personal assets as well as his real, 
are likewise pledged for the performance of the covenant, which makes such covenant a better security than any warranty, and it has therefore, in modern practice, totally superseded the other. 8. Lastly comes the conclusion, which mentions the execution and date of the deed, or the time of its being given or executed, either expressly or by reference to some day and year before mentioned. Not but a deed is good, although it mention no date, or hath a false date, or even if it hath an impossible date, as the 30th of February, provided the real day of its being dated or given, that is, delivered, can be proved. End of chapter 20 Part 1